So if you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 17. John 17. We're going to start in verses in verse 6 and we're going to go through verse 19 as we look at the second section of the high priestly prayer of Christ. And so feel free to have that open to you. You have a copy of the uh, you have a pew Bible there in, in your pew if you need to use that. Feel free to use the table of contents. You go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John in the New Testament. And so we look for the big number 17. That'll be the chapter that we're in. And then look for the little verse, the little number 6. That's the verse that we're going to start in if you're unfamiliar with kind of how the Bible is laid out. And again, how the whole scripture works, the Old Testament says someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels that we're in this morning, say someone's here right now. And the whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. And who is that someone? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the promised Redeemer. And so we're looking at John 17 as we've just worked our way verse by verse by verse through this gospel account. And as you're turning there, I don't know if you saw, there was a documentary film that came out in 2018 directed by Peter Jackson of kind of Lord of the Rings film fame. He was the guy that directed those. And the name of the documentary is They Shall Not Grow Old. And it is a documentary about the experience of British troops as they fought in World War I. And what they did was they brought in a bunch of archival footage and they were able to kind of add sound to it and colorize some of it and kind of get some, some uh, old interviews from folks. And it was a really just, just kind of an interesting look at just the brutality of World War I and uh, these soldiers as they fought in it. And if you're, in, if you're familiar with history at all, you know that World War I was a long and brutal war. And one of the things that it is kind of best known for in the midst of it is the idea of just trench warfare. It was trench warfare where you have these two sides, they would dig these long trenches, these, this series of like connected, like almost open-ended like ditches as they would go and the, and the soldiers would kind of fight in advance, build a new line of trenches, connect it to the old line and you had this whole network of trench warfare as the, as the two uh, sides faced off. And this association with trench, world, with trench warfare in World War I has actually led to a few slang phrases that we now use in English. You may not be uh, familiar with how, where these came from, but the, the, uh, the phrase over the top, you may have heard that, over the top, though that he's, he went over the top in that. We use it now to describe when someone says or does something that's unnecessary. The original meaning was used to describe someone going over the top of the trench um, on a dangerous venture with little chance of success or survival. So we say we'll go over the top. That's where we get that from. Also, the, the phrase you may have heard, in the trenches. We're in the trenches with someone. That's where we get that from. We use it now to describe going through a shared difficult experience with other people. That we're kind of, they were in the trenches with me. That's where we get, uh, that's where it kind of got into uh, our normal speech. And you think about those phrases, it's really the second one uh, that we're going to kind of focus in on and one that we're all familiar with because we often bond over shared difficulty together. You may have thought about like a hard-fought win in sports. If you were on a team and it was just this hard, long game, you just, it's that experience that kind of bonds the team together. Maybe going through a tough time in your family, oftentimes these stressful, hard times, they take a family and 
bond them together in a way that they had never really experienced before. Maybe going through a a natural disaster together. You can think about how in the wake of the tornado outbreak, how this community just kind of rallied and everybody kind of has that shared experience. Maybe being in the military, it just kind of gives you this instant bond with other people. And you can think of other experiences or other backgrounds like that. And we all have a soft spot in our hearts for those who have, quote, been in the trenches with us because they just kind of understand what we're going through and they often and and are oftentimes our best advocates because they understand too. We don't have to explain. We just kind of say, hey, this is hard and they get it and they're like, I know. You don't have to explain it to them. You think about maybe veterans rallying to one another, moms and parents with small kids. You don't have to explain it. You just go, man, this is hard, and they go, yeah, I know. It, it just is. You think about groups of, I've, I've been around groups of pastors, and we've talked about it, especially like for the past two years and COVID, and you know, it's just nice to be in, another, in a room full of other people that have kind of wrestled with this together, and you don't have to explain yourself. We just pray and say, yeah, it's hard, hang in there. You think about uh, widows groups, and you think about just these other groups that you can think of. And when we look at at John 17 and what we're talking about this morning, when we hear the prayer of Christ in chapter 17 in this section, we hear him advocating for those who have been in the ministry trenches with him as he prepares for his departure. And this prayer is the longest in the New Testament. It's known as the high priestly prayer. And like we said last week, it's so theologically dense, we're spending three different Sundays on it. There's three major sections to this prayer. We looked at verses 1 through 5 last week. We're looking at verses 6 through 19 this week, and then we're finishing out verses 20 to 26 next week. And we saw that this follows a very important pattern that we see in Leviticus 16, which is where it gets its name, the high priestly prayer. There was this pattern that governed the ministry of the Old Testament high priest on the annual day of atonement. And this reminds us yet again, as we see this prayer, of the continuity that exists between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The two are packaged together, and they, one, one references the other. And we see how Christ is fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. Now, on the, the high priest's intercession on the Day of Atonement had three major parts, three kind of big sections to it. The first part was he prayed for himself and he prayed for the ministry that he was about to do. Lord, please be with me as I'm about to go in and offer this sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. Please set me apart and please encourage me and please forgive me, O Lord, and set me apart. The next part is that he would make intercession for his fellow priests serving with him. Lord, don't just be with me, but be with all those who I'm serving alongside in this day of atonement. Then finally, he would make intercession for all the people of God and ask the Lord to be gracious and merciful. And so we look at this second part of Christ's high priestly prayer. We hear his prayer for his disciples in the upper room. It's kind of that mirrors that second section. But as with all scripture, this prayer impacts all of Christ's disciples, and that includes us. And so we can draw some things from this prayer. So we ask, what is Jesus actually praying for? Let's find out. John 17, starting in verse 6. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word as we consider this second section of Christ's high priestly prayer. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 
Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you had, have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's help as we approach his word. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you that you have not left us to figure life out on our own. You have given us your word. And Father, as we consider this high priestly prayer of our Lord and Savior this morning, comfort and encourage our hearts. Remind us, O Lord, that your word is true. Sanctify us in the truth as Jesus has prayed. We ask that you would do that this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. These things we humbly ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, so the big question we're going to look at this morning as we look at John 17 is, how does Christ's prayer reveal his heart for his disciples? So we're thinking about he's praying for these that you have given me, these that are with me. What, what do we find out about Christ's heart for his disciples? We're going to see three things directly from the text this morning. We'll see that Christ, number one, prays for them to be kept by the Father. Number two, he prays for them to be kept from Satan. And number three, he prays that they would be kept in the truth. Those are the three things we're going to look at, our three main points this morning. So let's look at that first point. If you're taking notes, we find that Christ prays for them, his disciples, to be kept by the Father. Last week in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prayed for himself and his ministry. He prayed for his Father to be glorified in the work of redemption that he is about to accomplish on the cross. And now Jesus prays for his disciples in the shadow of his impending death. As soon as the high priestly prayer is over, we'll see that they, him and the disciples, they leave the upper room and they walk out into the night. And so we are in the shadow of Christ's work on the cross. And the first part of the prayer does not include any intercession. That doesn't come until verse 11. He's describing this relationship that he has. These are yours and mine. And then we get to verse 11 and he starts asking the Father, because of that relationship, please make this true. He intercedes for them. Now, verses 6 through 8 give us a glimpse into the relationship that Jesus had with these men. We read, yours they were, and you gave them to me. When you think about this, these men were a gift to the Son by the Father. And this is actually referenced five different times in this prayer, that they were, you have given them to me, and they're like a gift to me. Jesus is telling the Father how much they mean to him. 
Here's what Sinclair Ferguson said about this kind of recap of the relationship that Jesus is talking about. He says, but what touches him, speaking of Christ, what, much, what touches him most deeply is that they belong to his Father and they are his love gift to the Son. Their chief worth is found not in themselves, but in the fact that the Father has loved them. And this is where we hit the pause button, just straight out of the gate as we're looking at this text. And we need to remember that this is not where our worth lies as well, despite what the world tells us. Our chief worth as Christians does not come from what we do. It comes from the fact that the Father has set His love upon us. It's not who we are, it's whose we are. We're reminded again that that's what gives us worth. That's what gives us value. That's what gives us dignity, is the fact that the Father has set His love upon us. And that gives us hope, and that gives us confidence. And we think, how do we know that this kind of love actually exists? How do we know that the Father's love towards broken, messed up people like you and me, how do we actually know that this type of love exists? The Father sent His Son to redeem us. And the Holy Spirit has tuned our hearts to hear His voice as the Good Shepherd. He said, my sheep know me and they know my voice. And He's tuned our hearts together. Here's what A.W. Tozer wrote that I thought was a great illustration in this. He, he says, he asked the question, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? Well, that was a great illustration. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become, quote-unquote, unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. What Tozer is saying is that when we meet together like this, our hearts have been tuned to hear His praise and grace together. Each of us tuned to hear the voice of the Father. You know, we, we pray, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. You think about the gathering that we have here this morning. It's just a wonderful, I thought it was a wonderful illustration. Verse 8 tells us of the common confession that they all shared. Look at verse 8. Verse <clears throat> It says, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. There's a great hymn that we love to sing, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And we think about this confession that the disciples are made. What bound them together? It's Christ. It's Christ. He's the tie that binds. He's the tie that binds us together this morning. He was the tie that bound the disciples together. It's Christ. It's always Christ. He is always the tie that binds. By the work of the Spirit, they had come to see Jesus as the very Son of God. As it says here, that is the thing that they noticed. This long-promised Messiah, this Redeemer who's going to come. and They had come and said, yes, we believe that you are the Son of God. And they have put their faith in Christ. And most commentators believe that when Jesus refers to your word, he is referring to the gospel message. He's referring to this gospel message. The disciples weren't perfect, but they believed the gospel. They believe who Jesus was. You are the Son of God. And we're sinners in desperate need of your grace. 
That's what they, at the, just the bare bones level, is what they confessed and believed and what bound them together. When you think about this band of disciples and you think about our church, our church looks a lot like a band of disciples, doesn't it? Normal people from a variety of different backgrounds united to each other because we've been called out of the world by grace and united to Jesus. That very word manifested on earth as John 1, 1 through 18, the great prologue, the opening salvo of John's gospel. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the very Word of God manifested in the flesh in Jesus. Our hearts have been tuned together to sing His praise along with the choirs of angels in heaven at this moment. You think about the all of heaven, Daniel, Titan. Remember several weeks ago he came and spoke about this, of the heavenly worship that's going on in heaven right now. And our, our hearts have been tuned together to sing this praise. It's just we're just part of one big large choir of believers and angels and saints in heaven praising our Lord. You ever thought about that? It's amazing when you think about it. Amazing. If you're in Christ, it's because the Father chose you out of the world. While you were dead in your sin and trespasses, and gave you to Christ, who manifested His Word to you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and regeneration and effectual calling, and did everything necessary to purchase your redemption so that you could know and rest in the gospel of grace by faith, He has done it all. He did every bit of it. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace we've been saved. And we say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. It's like in our hearts. I mean, you've ever seen a tuning fork work? You know, you take this, you have this standard there and you whack it on the table or something and then it rings out and it gives you the note. It's like the gospel. Just bing! And our hearts hear that and go, oh, yes. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. Just as these disciples were given to Jesus as a gift by the Father, as we see in verse 6, Jesus gave the disciples the gospel as a gift from the Father. And the Spirit opened their eyes to see that gift and the Son and the gospel message of grace. And we're told of another gift the disciples received in verse 9. They received the specific prayers of Jesus on their behalf. Note this mutual ownership in verse 10, that they're mine, and Father, they're yours, and you gave them to me. And these are, this is a group of people that are loved and known and kept by the Father and the Son and equipped by the Spirit. It's amazing when you think about it. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Think about this promise as Jesus intercedes. He says, no one can snatch a single one of these sheep out of my hand. It's amazing. What hope, what confidence does that give us? That the Lord is going to be with us until the very end. And it, He is the one who holds us fast. Again, let's hit the pause button. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus actually prays for you as your great high priest? And he intercedes for you before the Father as your great high priest? You ever thought about that? Jesus, your great high priest, interceding for you, for us. 
in front of the Father, in front of the throne of grace. And you're like, man, that's amazing when you think about it. Because none of us deserve that type of intercession. But yet, what a, what a picture of gospel. What a picture of, the gra- of grace. And we think, are you perfect? Am I perfect? No. No, I'm not. But if you were in Christ, you have a heavenly advocate and a secure future in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that's the reason to get up in the morning. Here's what Sproul said. We rest on confidence in the efficacy of the prayers of Jesus, not our own consistency as Christians. That's really good news. The efficacy of the prayers of Christ, it, what makes them powerful and what makes them work is His faithfulness, His consistency, His power, not our own consistency as Christians. I'm not a perfect Christian. You're not a perfect Christian. That's why we need Jesus. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that the power of Christ's prayer does not rest in me, it rests in Him. And I come to Him and I say, thank you, Lord, that you're faithful. Look at verse 11 as Jesus asked the Father to keep them, quote-unquote, in your name. This is the very essence of Jesus' prayer. Basically, Father, do not let go of them. I'm about to go, but Father, please keep them. Please hold them. Don't let go. Again, here's what Sproul said. Those who are saved are kept not just today but forever. Not by their own resources, but by the power of God himself. We are kept by grace until the end. We used this illustration several weeks ago. If you're anything like me, you forgot what you had for breakfast this morning. But you imagine we use this illustration of what this looks like. It's like a father and a son walking next to a highway or walking next to the railroad tracks. And imagine a little kid. And if any of you have ever had a little kid before, you know that as soon as you let go of that hand, that kid's running the other way. And so what keeps that one safe? What keeps the little one safe is the father holding on to him. I've got you. I'm going to keep that train from hitting you because I know that you don't know any better. So I'm going to hold tightly to you. Jesus comes and he prays, Lord, please, Father, please hold to them. Hold fast to them. The world is about to attack them. Satan is about to attack them. Lord, please hold them. The train's about to hit them. Please, Lord, please hold on to them. He prays that they may be one even as we are one. Now this verse has been misunderstood to mean that there should not be any denominations, just only one ecumenical body of believers. But what Jesus is talking about here is the reality of every true believer being united to the true vine and united to each other. This doctrine of union with Christ, even as we are one, as our hearts have been tuned together, the communion of the saints. Christ asked the Father to remind them of this union because it mirrors the union that Jesus has with His Father. As I am united to you, Lord, please Remind them of the union that they have with each other as they are united to the vine. Look at verse 12 as Jesus reiterates how he has kept his disciples and guarded them. The Greek word that's used here is similar. It gives you the idea of a shepherd diligently guarding his flock. He's always on the watch. So that Greek word has that kind of intensity to it. The shepherd that never sleeps as he's scanning and guarding and keeping watch over his flock. We see how his sovereign watch continued, even when there was a wolf among the sheep. Because we read about Judas. In John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus already referred to him as a devil. 
And now he's called the son of destruction. If you have a King James, it says the the son of perdition, which is a really strong kind of old-timey word. It's like being under the the judgment of God, being, you know, set apart and 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 put under the hand, the judgment hand of God. And we read again that Jesus was, or Judas, not Jesus, Judas was never born again. He was only numbered among the disciples to fulfill the prophecy about him and Jesus. In Psalm 41, verse 9, it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Echoes of Genesis 3.15. We see this, all this was to fulfill what God had promised in his word. It reminds us yet again that nothing falls outside the sovereignty of God. Even Judas... Was, was even Judas in that whole, um, that whole narrative that goes along with Judas. All of that was under the sovereignty of God. It did not take him off, off guard. All of it was part of the ultimate plan of redemption for us. And look in verses 13 and 14. Jesus prays that the disciples will have his joy. Think about that. Even when the world hates them, they'll still have joy. Now what is this joy? What's this joy that he's talking about? It's the hope of heaven, even in the shadow of death. Here's what Kent Hughes said that I thought was really helpful. Joy is the occupation, character, and realization of heaven. It is not dependent on circumstances, but on the love of a sovereign God. As Jesus prayed for our relationships with each other as Christians, he also prayed that we would be constantly kept aware of and growing in the knowledge of God, especially his father, fatherhood. And that way we would keep growing in oneness, which will result in joy, His joy. Growing in our knowledge and understanding of who God is and our relationship with Him because of Christ. That we are no longer His enemies, but we are His children adopted into His family. And a growing understanding of that, that Jesus and the Father love us and we're safe in the Father. And that leads to joy in our hearts. Now, two temptations, and we think about what's going on here, is Jesus prays for them to be kept safe from Satan. That's our second point, which will be point two and three will be shorter than the first one. Point two, Jesus prays for them to be kept from Satan because he knew that the disciples would need this joy and hope in the days to come, and we still need this too. Look at verse 15. Jesus never prays for the Father to give his disciples the easy road or to remove them from the world. What he does is he asks for the Father to keep them safe from the attacks of Satan, safe from the attacks of the evil one. Satan loves to to deceive. He loves to tear Christians apart. I pray against this in our church. Lord, please, please, Lord, keep Satan far away. He also loves to see Christians lose their influence in the world as they fall away and as they're tempted. And two temptations have always threatened Christians throughout the centuries as they think about their relationship with the world. They're like two ditches on either side of the road. The first ditch that you can fall into is complete isolation, where you completely remove yourself from the world and you isolate yourself in a Christian-only subculture, being neither salt nor light in a dark world as the Lord asks us to be. It's like salt just hanging out in the salt shaker. It's always there. It never leaves the salt shaker. And so the question that we have as we think about Christ and he asks us to go and to be salt and light in the world, do you have any non-Christian friends? If not, 
Why? Do you have anybody that you are friends with who doesn't know the Lord? Are you putting yourself in relationship and being around folks and be able to be salt and light in the world? Or are you falling into this temptation of just utter isolation? Now the other side of the ditch is assimilation. And this is the, well, if you can't beat them, join them mentality. Where you fully abandon any Christian identity for the sake of gaining favor with the world. And as we look around at kind of the state of evangelicalism in the world, many churches and Christians have chosen this path to avoid any negative press at the expense of fidelity to the Scripture and the Gospel. It's a very real temptation that when the world presses in, you go, oh, well, I don't really believe that because I don't want to raise the ire of the world. I don't want any negative press. Rather than being faithful to the Scripture and faithful to the Gospel and faithful to who Jesus is. It's a very real temptation. But again, as we think about how we're called to be salt and light in this world and to be set apart and different, do any of your co-workers or family know that you're a Christian? Is there anything they can point to that you would be declared guilty of knowing Christ? Again, we want to make sure that we don't isolate, we don't assimilate. So then we ask the question, well then, how are we to live? How do we think about this? We're called to be in the world, but not of the world, as we see in verse 16. We're called to be on mission. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We're called to be on mission, engaging with the culture around us for the sake of Christ. Pippert wrote a really helpful book about this idea of evangelism. said, out of the salt shaker and into the world. Bingo. That's it. Out into the world. We tend to think of quote-unquote missions as only foreign. But there's great ministry to do right here in our own backyard. And sometimes instead of just writing a check, you can go check on your neighbor. Go check on someone in in your family. Check on someone at work. Talk to others about Christ. The thing that I'm seeing after almost three years of ministry here in this county and seeing it in, the, in your lives, seeing it just around as I'm talking to folks, I'm seeing powerful things happen in the lives of people. When you just simply treat them like friends, you put the Bible in, and the gospel in front of them and then just faithfully live your life of trusting Christ in front of them. It does not have to be that hard. Just put the Bible in front of them. Talk to them about how your own need for Christ. Jesus has been so kind to me. Let me tell you about what a wretch that I am. And let me tell you about the Savior that loves a wretch like me and has been kind. It's literally that easy. I'm seeing powerful things happen as people are wrestling with the gospel. And they're coming up out of this works-based, I've got to do it all by myself type of religion. And they're learning how to just look to Jesus and trust and rest in Him that the gospel's true. It's changing people's lives. And you think, Lord, that's going on in our backyard. Let's be about that work. Let's ask the Lord to give us opportunities in that way. Lord, please give me an opportunity to share the hope of Christ. Let's pray and ask God to protect our church, our community, and our families from the attacks of Satan. And help us to grow in our unity as a church. Let's remember that our Lord Jesus prays for us because we're members of his body, members of his bride. Jesus intercedes for his church. We say, thank you, Jesus. Satan loves to rip growing churches apart. Satan loves to rip churches that are really understanding the gospel just to shreds. And may we pray, Lord, please keep Satan far away. Please protect us, O Lord, and give us hope. 
What's one very practical way that we can avoid being led astray? Read your Bible. Again, we said if you want to hear Jesus speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear Jesus speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. Read your Bible. Get familiar with your Bible. It's, it's not as easy to be deceived when you're familiar with the genuine article. Jesus has, God has given you a book in love that we could know what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. He has given us this book and we neglect it. Just read your Bible. Read it. Talk to me. Talk to somebody else if you want to learn how to maybe read and, and be able to study on your own. Hebrews 10, 23-25, the writer says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you, say, as you see the day drawing near. And so Jesus comes and he asks, Lord, Father, please protect them from the attacks of Satan. But now in our third point, final point, we see Jesus prays for them to be kept in the truth. Kept in the truth. Look at verse 17. Jesus asks them to be sanctified. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And there's that fancy word, sanctification. We ask, what is sanctification? Thankfully, our Shorter Catechism gives us a definition of it. Shorter Catechism 35 asks the question, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. We're conformed more to the image of Christ over the course of time by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit sanctifies us and our Lord has a powerful tool at His disposal, the Word of Truth. 2 Timothy 3, 14-17 but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with all the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see the common theme? We hold fast to this confession. We hold fast to this truth. We rest in it. We encourage each other with it. We are built up by it. Again, here's what Sproul said about this idea of sanctification. He said, Our sanctification comes from the Word of God and from the truth that is poured into our soul, truth that renews our minds, renews our thinking, and renews our lives as we are shaped and conformed to the Word. So let us hold fast to the Word of God together, encouraging each other while we're in the trenches together. See what I did there? 
reminding each other of what is true, not tearing each other apart. Stop tearing each other apart. Let's speak a word of grace. We're all in the trenches of ministry together. We don't need to shoot each other in the trenches. Encourage each other. We're all going to mess up. I'm going to mess up. I have already disappointed you. I will continue to disappoint you. Welcome to the ride. But I need Jesus. And we look to Christ together. Verse 19 shows us the heart of Christ towards His people on the evening of His death. Jesus is preparing to finish His mission on earth and to redeem the people given to Him. Okay, I'm almost done. Don't miss this. This is the power of what's going on here. The language in this verse echoes the Day of Atonement. Why? Because the priest had to go through a ritual washing, a consecration, before offering the sacrifice. Not just the priest, but also the animals that were going to be used and slaughtered were themselves consecrated and set apart before they were slain and offered to God. Again, here's what Sproul says when we think about it. Did you catch that last little bit at the end where he says, I consecrate myself in verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Again, here's what Sproul said, speaking about what's going on here. So Christ was both the subject and the object of his priestly work. In the upper room, our great high priest was sanctifying himself, consecrating himself, setting himself apart for the task that lay ahead of him. The only thing that rescues you from yourself or me from myself is a true understanding of God, a true understanding of Christ, a true understanding of our hopeless condition, and a true understanding of grace. The truth redeems. The truth preserves. The truth makes us free. The truth makes us holy. Jesus understood that. And in the agony of his intercession, he prayed that his disciples might be people of the truth. What we see here is on the, in the shadow of the cross, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, he says, Lord, con I consecrate myself, but not just as the high priest. I'm also the sacrifice. I am the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, the table set before you reminds you of that. Jesus said, it's my body and my blood. I am about to be sacrificed and my blood sprinkled for the redemption of my people, of whom I know each and every one of them, and I will carry each and every one of them until the very end. And we think about this picture of grace that's set before you. It is exactly that. It is all of grace. It is all of grace. None of it merited. None of it deserved. Christ moved towards us in love. And he said, I'm going to give my life for you. Is that your hope today? Do you know my Savior? Do you know Christ? Do you rest and really understand the transaction that took place at the cross Jesus died in real space and time and willingly gave himself up to rescue and redeem those who once were his enemies are now his friends. It's the hope of the gospel when you think about what's going on. All of it's by grace. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, as we think about what's going on here, as we live life in the trenches together, let us hold fast to this truth. Christ has died Christ is risen, 
And Christ will come again as we look to this table. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Every bit of it's true. Lord, we're grateful that you sanctify us. Lord, we don't sanctify ourselves. It is all a work of your spirit. And so, Lord, as we come to your table, help us to be reminded of your grace to us. Help us to be reminded of your mercy. Help us to be reminded of all that you have done to rescue and redeem us, O Lord. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, we are thankful for your intercessory work on our behalf. And Lord, help us to rest and trust in the gospel. Help us to look to you and look to you alone, not to ourselves. These things we humbly ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.